You're listening to a DM podcast. G'day and welcome back to Behind the Podcast with Jules and Stocks. Today, Stocks held a fort while I was away and went behind the podcast with Lauren Martin and Cara Jensen McKinnon from Temporary. Temporary speaks to the lives of people who came to Australia seeking refuge and the laws that entangle them in endless uncertainty. Stocks, tell us a bit about the show. We started the conversation with Cara back at the Australian Podcast Awards, which was the first week of December, about doing this interview. And this is just podcast interviews in a nutshell. It took us until now to actually get this episode up, just trying to all get in the same room. But this is a fascinating podcast, um, very important. And it's what I found really interesting is how they had to build a coalition between the University of New South Wales' Renata Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law. And then they've also got uh, another stakeholder, which is a Collier Charitable Fund. And then they've also got the New South Wales, University of New South Wales Centre for Ideas and The Guardian. So they've got all these different stakeholders they've had to pull together to make this really important podcast. So it's a really good chat about that and then how they've done it. And Cara is one of the most talented podcast producers I've come across. So some real knowledge in here that's worth unpacking. Why don't we get stuck in then and hand over to Cara and Lauren. Tell us about Temporary. Temporary is an eight-episode narrative documentary podcast that tries to explain a really complex area of refugee law, um, but more importantly, lets people who've experienced that system firsthand tell the story. Very important story at that. <laughs> it is, and, and I think... For a lot of people, it was very much forgotten. It was one of those issues that the laws got changed at one point and there was some hoo-ha and nothing changed and then years went by and these people were no longer in the news and nothing. there was no urgency about the situation they were still enduring. And I think we felt really um, passionately that that this couldn't be an unknown story. And I feel as well that Australian media has kind of systematically removed the identities from people seeking asylum in Australia, and so we don't even refer to them by name when we're telling their story in the news. And so the process of being able to give people back their voices by using the podcast medium was something that was really special, I think, allowing them to you know, tell their own stories and speak for themselves. Yeah, I think that was really important in, in how the project evolved. It sort of began as an idea. I was a journalist for a long time, but I now work at UNSW for the Caldor Center for International Refugee Law, and they have all this expertise in this area. 
and it's my job to get that out into the world and to make that accessible and and so that everybody can appreciate it but it doesn't mean anything as a you know it doesn't affect you to hear somebody comment on a piece of law so the idea was to humanize it through getting people to share their stories and we got a little grant to do that and my background is in print so the and and I could see an online feature coming out of this but it became clear really early on if you were going to ask people to expose themselves in this way to it's it's incredibly brave what these people have done um that you might as well really go big really be ambitious really hope that lots of people will hear this story that you're not going to spend a lot of time spend a lot of mental energy and emotional energy for these people and then have it be a small thing at the at the same time i knew that cara had just started a gig at that time at unsw and maybe her job wasn't clearly enough defined <laughs> yet and that maybe i could grab her because she's the one with the podcast experience and the audio and and content skills in that way and she immediately understood that if these people would agree to do it to have it literally in their voices not just their quotes but literally in their voices would really work and that's when the story sort of the the podcast was born and the whole project became much more yeah. ambitious yeah i think um we had like a series of secret meetings at coffee shops on campus at UNSW because i technically at that time wasn't allowed to be working on kind of projects that were outside of my remit but <laughs> It was like immediately obvious to me that it was going to be a huge and great project and it was something that was just, it just felt so clear. And so I pitched it back to my work um, at the time was the Centre for Ideas, which is at UNSW. They usually put on events, but I was running their digital program to have this collaboration whereby we could bring like my digital skills, which is basically just like, well, extensively using the internet is my skill um, and making things for people that use the internet with Lauren's kind of Caldor centre background and then came together and made temporary and it's just become this gigantic very gigantic project <laughs> so it sounds like there's a ton of stakeholders involved tell us who was involved and how it all came together so the stakeholders a complex list there is UNSW I guess the University of New South Wales at the top just the university in general and then the Centre for Ideas which was a department that I worked with the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law which is where Lauren works then there was RACS who are the Refugee Advice and Casework Service which is basically just a um, legal aid organisation offering free services to refugees and there was Guardian Australia who were our media partner who were publishing the podcast and then there were, goodness, I mean, just several other key individuals who thought they had a stake in how the show was kind of made. Yeah, and it was, as part of the larger project, there were was the Refugee Art Project that did mm -hmm. all the photography and original art. We had somebody who was seeking asylum at the time who did... Um, composition who, who oh, yes. composed the original soundtrack I mean it just seemed to go yeah on and on all the people who were involved in the approvals at one yeah. point or another and it, I think yeah that was a really challenging element of it because you kind of the core team really had a um a vision about how the the final work should sound and should look and because there were so many kind of various bureaucratic interests involved, they were asking, you know, to see things and to hear things. And they were so far removed from the project that that became <laughs> really challenging. Just a lot of huge emails with a lot of people CC'd constantly, <laughs> people listening, you know, what's this? What am I reading? That sort of thing. And that was definitely a challenge in the production. It sounds like an immense challenge. <laughs> It was, and right from the very beginning, like Cara mentioned RACS, the Refugee Advice and Casework Service, they were just super collaborators with us. 
they got involved because the Caldor Center doesn't actually see clients. And so we got in touch with Rax, who helped us identify people who were strong enough to do it, who'd been clients of theirs, who had interesting stories to tell. They obviously understand all the twists and turns in the law through the different years and people whose lives have been turned upside down because suddenly what was legal one day wasn't the next or it was retrospectively applied, you know. Um, so we, Cara and I, had the, the project really got up and running, I think, when we had this big roundtable meeting with like mm. 10 lawyers from there all sharing stories of different people and for hours we just listened trying to uh, taking notes yeah. listening and and trying to identify who who the whose stories um we would be able to tell yes exactly and so that was the beginning of it like this part of the process took so long mm-hmm. as a as somebody who worked in daily journalism for a long time i was like now I understand why this doesn't happen more often yeah. because even once we identified the people we wanted, then there was toing and froing to see if they would want to do it, and we were a step removed from that. Mm-hmm. So, and we really wanted to say, oh, look, you know, if you want to be anonymized in some way, there's lots of different ways we could do that. But we couldn't really make our case because Rex was making the case for us, and sometimes yeah. we couldn't reach people. Then when we got them, we wanted to proceed really ethically. So each of them also got independent legal advice about participating in the project. Right. And is that something that was paid for or is that something that's supplied? That was pro bono. Right. I mean, I have to applaud that. You yeah. know, that was other refugee advice. Mm-hmm. What I love about this is that you've started where... All good stories should start. You started with the story. Yes. Um, you haven't started. You've got an idea. You found the story. You found the the people to tell the stories. From there, are you uh, all these other stakeholders you've had to get involved? Um, and people you're employed by, I imagine, mm-hmm. and then people with money and the media partners. I mean, how do you? Yeah. <laughs> what do you do from having that, the session with the ten lawyers? How do you even? Get the inv- I guess get the buy-in from the rest of these I think, organizations. I think it is just that it's the power of the story. And so once we had these key individual voices, when it came to pitching it to the Guardian, when it came to pitching it to you know the higher ups at UNSW, everyone was keen because everyone could tell that it was going to be a really important project and that we had great stories to tell. And so I don't think it was difficult to get everyone's buy-in. What I think was difficult was that no one was aware of how huge and complicated the process was going to be. I think that's it. Like, and how involved we would need to be with each of the individual people. And I think that was the challenge that most people didn't see coming. Okay, so what were the biggest complexities that I guess you didn't see or you were surprised by? I think... I think for me it was kind of reconciling the line between understanding what makes a good story but also trying to be um trying to what do i want to say um hang on let me actually think about what was difficult for me (laughs) aside from from everything (laughs) um Yes, it was reconciling the line of what makes a good story um, as a journalist, but also wanting to be genuine in the telling of the refugees' stories and so wanting them to kind of lead their story with their personal experience and not kind of cut it up too much into a story that I think will be compelling, but really allowing them the space and time to talk to us for hours and to feel comfortable sharing those stories and then kind of after the fact in the post-production time to kind of slice it all up but still um, still have what we've produced being compelling but also authentic to what their original story is, I think was the most difficult thing. That's an incredibly fine line to walk. It really, yeah. it really is. It really is, especially because a number of the people that we spoke to, or almost all of them, I don't think fully understood the nature of the project because... They all, you know, had come from different countries. Some of them required translators and interpreters. And so, you know, you're doing your best to say, we're journalists, we're trying to tell your story. Um, 
but there's so much complexity around the fact that they've had bad experiences telling their story to people in the government to other journalists before who may have kind of just left their stories you know and not published them and so even the process of telling their very traumatic story is you know opening a bunch of wounds that we had to be really careful about and so I kind of really got sucked into messaging people to make sure they're okay and making sure the space felt comfortable and making sure they really understood you know that they didn't have to say things they didn't want to but that we were going to do our best to convey their stories to as many people as possible because they're really important yeah that's interesting isn't it you're coming from a you're dealing with people who are coming from a fleeing a situation for because they're they're threatened so there's definitely going to be some institutional um, scepticism or fear of institutions then they come here get treated let's say poorly there's more that's well, let's just say that gets just um, the noise. it gets compounded it gets compounded and and then hey come tell me your story trust me hey you've never met me that's uh, really um, yeah that's incredible that to create that safe space so were you doing your interviews in person so yeah we um initially did all of the interviews as pre-interviews over the phone just to kind of feel out what their story and what their experience was and then we went you know back to the drawing board and decided how we were going to hash out the episode structure and which of the key elements of each of their stories we were going to focus on in the episodes and then um the one the the storytellers who were based in sydney we invited to various studio spaces some we recorded in their homes and then there was one woman who was in South Australia and one man who lived in Perth and they recorded, we organised recording studio facilities and translators there for them. Amazing. Yeah. And I think for me, I had, um, I think you're being incredibly generous by not also mentioning that there was a pressure, I think, to make sure there was an an understanding of the law that went with it. Um, From the Caldor Centre's point of view, it was really important that with the stories came an understanding of what needed to change. And in many times we kept applying that pressure and it didn't always... It would have been easier not to do that, and I think that many times, um, because Cara was managing all the audio, that was that was a, an extra pressure on you. And also in the process that she just described, the two interviews, because I was doing long form stories that would sit alongside them. They weren't transcripts of the podcast; they were a completely different telling of the same story in some times focusing on the same thing, sometimes not, I had the advantage of being able to use all the interviews, Um, the the pre-interviews that we did and then the, you know, the really well-recorded ones. Um, And I, I, you know, that also, so even within the project, when it was just really the two of us sort of, for months and months ignoring all the outside stakeholders (laughs) and and pressures there was still you know like all this sort of rough stuff that you don't have if you're just doing something much simpler yeah yeah that was difficult because it is that you know when somebody's telling their story and they're getting you know choked up because they're going over a particularly emotional part or their phone rings or you know it buzzes (laughs) on the table for me to be like um, can you just tell us again that part of the story? Because um, your phone just buzzed and that's going to sound bad. Like, it's that for me where you don't want to make somebody relive something over and over again. But I'm kind of very mindful that I need you to tell your story as well as possible so that it's going to cut up really nicely. And that was difficult. There was one particular I- guest we we recorded in his house and his wife, who was wonderful, kept bringing out tea on these little trays for us with these little, like, clinky 
but like these little clinky cups, cups and, and china, china oh. and like these little plates of biscuits and just kept setting them down and I was like thank you but also please like stop bringing those loud biscuits into the room so it's that sort of thing where you've got to kind of sacrifice some of the product for the authenticity of just what it's like to record in those spaces yeah yeah it can give it it can <laughs> add value yeah at the right amount but exactly could you please repeat this horrific detail from your life again because there was a chinking bit of China. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> or I'd be working off the transcripts and go, why don't you just put this in? This is just like the best quote. And she'd like say, have you listened to it? And it would be full, full of, you know, it just would sound bad. Whereas if you just read it, it was good. So for me, this was an incredible experience to to see the extra layers that have to go into the podcast telling of a story as opposed to a text telling yeah. of a story. Yeah, it's, it's a quite, different thing, but yeah. it's great to hear that sort of all the content was useful. Oh, yeah. Everything mm-hmm. you did was, yeah. you know, used, I guess. Is this the first podcast you've been involved in, Lauren? Yes. Okay. Yes. So at one point I, I edited a, a Bright Shining Briefly Lived um, site uh, called The Global Mail where we did a lot of different approaches we tried to start with the story and say how would this be best told is it a data viz is it a graphic novel is it um is it an actual book is it a feature story is it a video is it audio and and it was in the sort of years when the new york times did snowfall and everybody was (laughs) putting video and audio in the middle of stories so i came at it with that sort of background but certainly um all the audio is Kara, and and I learned so much about it from her about the rhythm and the balance and everything else. The journalistic approach, I think, was the same, but how how that is implemented, how that comes out, um, is more different than I realized. And so I was very lucky to have her as a a Sherpa through the podcast. <laughs> mountain <laughs> so you formed quite a team then how long were you working together on this project for oh my god <laughs> longer than we expected it's, yeah it started goodness like when did we start maybe june 2019 maybe earlier right. mid-ish 2019 and we were hoping to be finished by kind of towards the end of 2019 maybe beginning of 2020 um, and we had, so we had a host, Sonke, who I haven't even mentioned yet, mm. but she kind of came in and we were doing recordings with her. But basically COVID struck at the exact time where we were probably three or four weeks from the end of the show. And so everyone kind of went down to we, ground. It was an incredible week because we were finalising all the details of an, a launch we, because there were mm. so many stakeholders involved. And because it was so important, we felt to sort of repay with respect the the bravery of these people who told their stories and the artists and everyone else, we had an event planned, like... A big event. A big <laughs> event. <laughs> Huge event. <laughs> yeah. And the news about COVID was starting come in with meanwhile trying to finish the trailer and finish episode one and and the plan was then to just be working as they came out each week um, because we had this hard date of the launch with a place booked and everything else and then it became clear that that was not going to happen and we told everybody that was not going to happen and in retrospect it was it was good for us because yeah, I think so. the Guardian said, "Don't even. Um, nobody's reading anything but COVID." Lost. Exactly. Yeah. There was no news for so long that wasn't COVID. <laughs> it was literally the entire Guardian was just COVID news, and everyone was just jaded. I think because we'd been working so hard to a certain point, and we had allocated like exactly enough energy to be able to finish the project, and then when it kind of <laughs> And then we would be finished. But then when COVID hit and everyone kind of just went to their individual houses, 
everyone was just quiet and had to sit around for like two months to try and understand and make sense of what the hell the world was doing. And so we kind of managed to formulate like a very janky way to record and finish the podcast just via Zoom calls. Yeah, because what Kara's not mentioned yet is Sasunke Umsmang, who was our host, who had flown to Sydney to do a lot of the, you know... Um, Where had she Narration. Come from? from Perth. She's from right. Perth. And then she was going to do all the pickups in the days before the launch, and mm. then she couldn't travel, nobody could travel. Um, so all of that... You're organising <laughs> in a studio in Perth with an engineer over there and an engineer here and, yeah, like... It just, exactly, it just became, like, basically a logistical nightmare at that point where, you know, she's three hours behind in Perth time, we're sending her through edits, she has to read it and then me and the other producer, Miles Herbert, are both sitting there on Zoom with headphones on, like, trying to direct how she's reading and making sure it sounds the same, then we'd get the rushes and try and put them put it all together. But to not kind of... I think because when she came to Sydney for that week when we were recording, it was so nice to be in the same space together. And she was so receptive to all of the feedback we were giving her, and she's also a, a beautiful narrator. Um, but when all of a sudden she's sitting in some, like, weird shed studio in Perth recording and we're, like, on <laughs> Zoom looking at her through these little squares being like okay, but can you try it again, but more like this? Like, it just kind of lost that really beautiful, like, magic, I think, that we had. But everyone knew that we'd done so much, and so the project just had to keep going, like, in whatever weird cobbled-together way <laughs> we could work out. It's funny to think back to those early days. We're all now so comfortable with Zoom, and we're all there's all these incredible apps for recording locally, mm-hmm. via browsers, your riversides, your things like that, all these great programs that exist. But back then it was. It was just people going, oh, I've used Zoom a couple times. But oh, it's all... It's funny to think back of how awkward that was in the early days. Yeah, totally. And also just exactly just not being able to actually hear the quality of a person's voice. So there'd be times where we're listening and we're on the chat and I'm like, did she drop out for anyone else? Like, is she sounding bad to anyone else? Because everyone was using the internet at the exact same time in the suburb where I live. And so it was like, you know, the slowest speed in the world. And she just sounded like a robot for half the time. And I just had to trust, you know, chatting to the engineer, like, is she speaking normally? Does she sound okay? And so, yeah, that was really difficult, just trusting that it was going to be okay when we got sent the files because, yeah, Zoom recording sucked yeah. then. <laughs> just breathe through your teeth. And, exactly. And everything else, we'd really gone, you know, for high quality. Mm. You know, everything was done right. Mm. Um, so you didn't want... You want to have bits of it stick out. Well, the last bit is the narrator. You can't have the narrator be crappy <laughs> exactly. audio. <laughs> it exactly. really Especially, yeah. Especially because yeah. it's pickups as well. Like mm. you can't be kind of slicing together really beautiful audio mm. with like some weird tinny like shared audio. So, <laughs> so look, that's a nice pivot into I guess let's run through the team because it's quite a big team and so we run through some of the key people in the team and also you, but yourselves as well a little bit of history of yourselves. So it's Sasanke. Um, she's the host. Mm. Yes. That's fantastic. And then we've got, <laughs> I mean, how did you come across her? How did she become involved in the project? Was it? She had, so my in my capacity at the Centre for Ideas at UNSW, she had spoken at an event previously and, my, and she was an incredible speaker. Um, she herself uh, is originally from South Africa, but she was exiled from South Africa and moved to Canada. Um, and now lives in Perth, but she had... We were really wanting somebody to narrate the show that had lived experience kind of with being exiled or with being a refugee themselves. We wanted their story to add another element to the storytelling of the show, and she also has the most perfect voice, um, so that also (laughs) makes it easy, but she brought so much of her own experience and her own perspective. She's very outspoken um, on these issues. She's written a lot as well for The Guardian especially on this and so she felt like the perfect fit and the fact that she said yes was like amazing for all of us well we had been really sweating on who we would Mm. invite to do it we you know so many things go into how you choose 
the host for something, for any podcast, and this one seems to have, again, all those extra layers of complication. And we had a, a big list of names going back and forth, and then it was at a Center for Ideas event, which was about feminism or something. And the very first question that got asked to this panel of women, including Sasanke, she answered by talking about the people who were stuck on Manus and Nauru. And immediately after that, Kara and I messaged each other and said, are you thinking what I'm thinking? (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah, she's just, yeah, she was such a perfect fit. And she really, yeah, she really brought so much to the project. And I think at the time she said she was looking for a way to say more about these issues. Mm. And she, she didn't really have something and she hadn't really done a podcast herself before so she was keen to jump into that she's you know head of this she does a lot of writers yeah she works of writers the week center and the center for, for story mm, in perth so it was a perfect yeah fit. she was perfect yeah, she was yeah. Really perfect <laughs> and great to work with and then you've got llama and i don't want to get this wrong zakaria is that right mm-hmm. the composer yeah. 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 So she, we met, she was a friend of actually somebody that works at the Caldor Centre with Lauren. And her and I met up and she herself um, was uh, a refugee who has moved here from Jordan. And she is a beautiful composer, incredible composer. And so her and I kind of met up and... I filled her in on the project and she was obviously very keen to be part of it. Um, and I had these like extreme, cause I'm not a musician myself. I had all these wacky ideas about like using only instruments from the countries where the people had come from and using kind of different time signatures. So it sounded, you know, it was uneasy for a person to listen to. And she really ran with all of those like weird cues and made really beautiful stems and music for us. And she, yeah, was just so generous with her time and um, now works in Sydney as a podcast producer and a sound designer. She's incredible. Yeah, I she mean, really is. That, <laughs> uh, and your vision is something that definitely came to life when I was listening. There's these sort of pauses where you let, seem to let it breathe and the music is always just, just helps that pause just, I guess, expand. It's really tough to describe, but you really nailed uh, just a mood and a and a, and a vibe that was um, gave it so it gave it so much more depth. I guess yeah. the texture. Well, that's all her. <laughs> <laughs> well, fantastic. it's her. It's your brief. It's the good luck that um, you know. Kara mentioned she was a friend of Sankita Pillai, who is the who wrote the. She was our legal consultant on the whole project. She wrote the section trying to break down all these things. If you want to go for more, here's, you know, here's the law in as basic a concept as I can get it. And she just happened to be friends with this person who is a multi-award winning instrumentalist mm. and composer from Jordan. Is You know, it was, that was one of the great coincidences. Yeah, that really just, was. Fell into a bit of serendipity. Place. <laughs> yeah. Now, let's talk about you a bit, Cara. Okay. Now, I first met you <laughs> on the roast, where you're a very talented writer. <laughs> and now you're currently working at Schwartz Media at 7 a.m.? Yes, so. 7 a.m., a producer. Yeah, it's um, been a very strange career trajectory that I've had. Um, I did start out as a comedy writer. And (laughs) have ended up, I guess, doing projects that aren't very funny at all for anyone. But, yeah, I think I've just been captured by storytelling and ways to tell a story. And so I figure if there's something that I find compelling, I'll retrofit a medium to it. And so I've done um, film work. I've done audio work. An artist as well? Yeah, I've done animation stuff. And so it is just like there's a way to tell a story to an audience and I'll try and figure out what that way is by, yeah. It was a terrible explanation of my career. (laughs) (laughs) I do. (laughs) But you're truly, in the truest form, a storyteller. Yes, I think so. I think so. And I don't even really like... At the minute, I'm grappling with, like, whether I should even call myself a journalist because I don't feel like I'm qualified really properly. But I do feel like 
I can tell or help people tell stories. Mm, look, we have a few journalists in our podcast network and more and more of them are calling themselves storytellers instead of journalists. So, mm. uh, was there a podcast that got you into the medium? Is that bad? No, I think it's... Uh, <laughs> yeah, was, was there a podcast that got you into the medium that I really think, sort of lit something in you? Uh, I think I've been listening to a podcast for a really long time. Like I started out, I guess, like anyone else did in space, probably listening to This American Life, um, Reply All, kind of those sorts of shows where it was this they really exercised what the medium could do with stories and it was just so nice to be able to sit with a host and listen to them and have this really kind of intimate relationship with a person that you're listening to just in your ears alone. Um, and that unlocked something for me. The types of people who can tell their stories aren't the sorts of people that you can have on television and the fact that the people themselves can tell their stories in their own voice is, to me, better than film as well because it just feels so much more authentic. And so there were probably kind of key episodes of those sorts of shows where I was like, this is good. Like, And it's also very accessible as a medium too. Like if you have a phone, you can make a – I mean, it's not a great podcast, but you can make something yourself. Anyone can make it. So, yeah, I think that's what I like the most, the accessibility and just the capacity for storytelling. And, Lauren, a bit of your background. Yeah. So I'm much less a bit of interesting. It, but, yeah. I I came to Australia, worked for women's magazines, then had a long time at the Sydney Morning Herald, okay. and uh, worked in covering the arts, covering film. Then went because my background was in politics. It, it just having arrived in Australia didn't feel like I was across the politics, but eventually I was. And went and worked in Canberra, and and I was there as a political reporter during sort of the beginning of some of this, you know. Um, so that's really going back to the sort of John Howard, Pauline yeah. Hanson era. Yeah. yeah, and then I went to the states and edited a newspaper there. Came back and worked on the Global Mail, and then got onto the what what journalists call the dark side. But I've never been really comfortable there, so I still try and bring editorial into whatever comms work I'm doing at any point. And the Caldor Center is super supportive of that. That's what they want. And the first time you sort of encountered or were inspired by podcasting or podcasts? Oh, also very much a This American Life person going way back. <laughs> we did, when I was in the States, um, I lived on Martha's Vineyard, edited a newspaper there, and and the first um, police shot in anger uh, ever, I think, in this town um, was out of Turkey, and it became an episode of This American Life by a guy who worked for me there who then came and worked for the Global Mail named Sam Bungie, and uh, his Turkey story on This American Life is still really fantastic. He went back and got the 911 calls and Wow. <laughs> so that was one where I really understood the story just worked so much better. They play it still most Thanksgivings. Oh. <laughs> wow. That's cool. Yeah. Um, just to pivot back to the podcast for a minute now, um, you did talk about the launch and how it got kiboshed <laughs> and pushed back. How did you end up launching the podcast? And can you tell us a bit about that? I don't think there was really any fanfare in the end because we launched it in another, the third COVID lockdown. I think the end of, it was November 2020 when it launched and it just kind of went online. The episode went up. It was on The Guardian. We had a big feature piece that Lauren had written and we launched episode one and two and it was just out there because the thing was we had, you know, so COVID was taking up so much real estate on the news and so we were waiting for that to end. And then in October we had Black Lives Matter and then that took up, you know, the other half of the news and, and the person, Miles um, Martignoni, who we were working with at The Guardian was like, the news doesn't stop. There'll never be a good time. to. It's not like there'll be a day where there's no news and you can release this. And so we just picked a date kind of arbitrarily working back, you know, from a weekly release cycle to get it out um, before Christmas. And that was it. And it came out. I was locked down at my parents' house. I think I had like a little glass of Prosecco with my mum and dad. 
And then that was it. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. <laughs> and then relied on the full weight of the yeah. Guardian to get you out there. And, and how was it received? Because, I mean, look, I think we've touched on it, but it, it's such an important topic and theme, the whole idea of this temporary and how uh, uh, disempowering it is and how a horrible thing it's become a permanent part of Australian, what feels like a permanent hopefully part of Australian not. policy. Exactly, mm-hmm. hopefully not. But how's it been received? And what can you tell me about the audience and the feedback you've got? That was really, really gratifying because um, we knew these people, we knew their stories, we'd now lived with them for over a year in our lives and we really wanted to feel that we'd done them justice. And immediately the feedback was great. The ratings were high, the, but more importantly, the things that people were saying in their ratings, like, you know, I didn't know this about Australia. It was heartbreaking, but it's helped me to start conversations and to, you know, start taking action personally. And so you thought it really can move people to if, if if it moves people to take action, this might not be a permanent part of our refugee policy, which would be the ultimate outcome. Um, we got uh, one of the storytellers, Hani Abdullah, uh, was on Q and A and read one of her poems. She's a, she wrote a lot of poetry while she was in detention and still writes poetry and and has been published. She was performing. She was on Radio National Breakfast. Uh, Zaki Hadari, whose story is in episodes one and two, he has since gone on to sort of form his own group to um, lobby for change and to for permanent protection for those people on temporary protection, and in particular, people from Afghanistan. Um, mm. So that's that was fantastic. Obviously, the um, podcast award was amazing. Um, that's crazy. <laughs> so it was interesting because the first first thing I think we entered it in was the the webbies, and and we were surprised to get you know to the finals of that um, because obviously it's. It's podcasts from all over the world and, mm-hmm. you know, there we were in the same category as Slow Burn and, mm-hmm. you know, really amazing things. And and so that was great. Um, later on, in the just last month, um, it got an Anthem Award. Uh, the So I, I think, you know, the project has been schools have um, contacted us to use it you know in in high schools in legal studies classes in sociology classes in um, um, geography and human whatever it's called now it's been a while since <laughs> I was in high school um, a lot of civil society groups um, the Amnesty International and Jesuit Refugee Services did a whole thing with faith based like Jesuits had Catholics use it as a Lenten thing and Incredible. yeah mm. like there was a lot of um, impact that that we felt really, I, I don't know what you think, Cara, but I felt like, okay, we, we did them right. We did yeah. right by the people who were I so think, courageous. I think uh, at least my expectations were pretty modest at the beginning in terms of listenership because it is a really difficult issue and it's really harrowing to sit, you know, to ask people to listen to eight hours of this type of content. And so I was kind of of the mind that, the first episode, Zaki's story acts kind of like a pilot whereby it's got a lot of his story, but it also has kind of a snapshot of the history of Australian refugee law. And I felt that if we can just get people to listen to this one episode, so at least they can understand some of the history, some of the politics, and hear a person tell their story, that would be enough for me. And I was hoping, I think, for like 8,000 listens, and that was it. And that was like a secret number that I didn't tell anyone, because I was like, maybe that's too high. What was it based on? Just kind of, it was based on 
Um, Because I used to work at The Guardian and I knew the metrics for refugee stories. And it's it's a story that people, they, they do care, but it's so overwhelming to get information that's always bad, I think. And that's the thing. It's never good news. It's always bad news. And it wasn't like the podcast has a happy ending. You know, all of these people are still in limbo. That's the end of every story ultimately is that they're still waiting just for some basic rights. And I think that it's it's a hard ask, I think, to get people to listen to it. And so I was just so pleased for the storytellers that so many people engaged with it because, yeah, I, as I said, 8,000 people was my, like, benchmark. Can you say how it went? I don't even know now. Yeah. The Do last well I checked, it was yeah. 125,000. That was the last I checked. What? Yeah. Yeah. For the whole, for all of them combined. Amazing. And, and, and Cara, it, like, very carefully structured it because Zaki's story, he's very compelling. His story is harrowing, but it's, it's also very compelling. But she very cleverly then put as episode three, which comes after Zaki's story, this incredible woman from around Alahe who is so sassy and... Um, it just changes the tone of the whole oh, podcast. Look, yeah. and so sophisticated. And, you know, I I think that that was really good structuring on your part because if you could make it to episode three, then you were probably going to go to the fourth, you know. Yeah, then you're hooked, yeah. That's so smart to make episode one, though. It it, it was, there was so much, you just set the table of, this is how we've got to this moment. Yeah. This this fell, then this fell, and this this was what was going on, and now we're still in, this is what we've landed in. And so it it was really smart to just go, oh, great, if I just listen to that, bang, I'm full up to speed. Look, you're very talented what you do, there's no doubt, I mean. (laughs) I know the airs. Right in here as well. So <laughs> that's why you read. But um, no, it was a fantastic, fantastic podcast. I mean, you should be really proud of what you've done. And it's such an important Thanks. story as well. Did it get picked up much overseas in terms of as much of the audience outside of Australia? Or? Um, a little. I think it's such an Australian story. That's yeah. the issue. Like, we are one of the worst, if not the worst country when it comes to refugee policy. And I think that our, you know, Australia's kind of held up other countries now are trying to move towards a more Australian model. I don't know why, um, but they are headed that way. And so I think that as more international interest, you know, is in what is this Australian model, then maybe people will pick up the podcast, but it is very Australian. Yeah, I would say that because the UK has a bill pending right now in the House of Commons that would do all sorts of things, including temporary protection and offshore processing mm-hmm. we have um sent it to civil society groups who've contacted us and said maybe this is something you can share with your people to understand what you're really entering into if you yeah. go ahead with this so hopefully let's hope so yeah, yeah. all right on to more positive note um yeah. we'd like to get everyone who comes in here to recommend a couple podcasts they're listening to who wants to go first I can go first. I have actually recently just finished a podcast called The Trojan Horse Affair. It's a New York Times podcast um, that they've just put out, and it is great. It's crazy. I don't even know where to begin explaining it. it. There was, goodness, I probably should have thought about this before I started talking about it, how I would explain it. It's The premise is a letter is sent to a, I think it's a council accusing a group of teachers at a school in Birmingham in the UK of being terrorists and um, because and promoting kind of um, they're promoting the Islamification of the school and the letter ends up being fraudulent and it's written by maybe another woman who wanted to get these people fired and so these two journalists, one of which has just gotten a journalism degree, kind of called Hamza, and the other's Brian Reed, who is um, of This American Life fame and also S Town, try to get to the bottom of who wrote this fraudulent letter. And so there's that story, but then the whole podcast becomes kind of a um, a story about what it means to be 
a storyteller because Brian Reed kind of at the beginning sees himself as this like objective, weird NPR kind of lofty dude. And Hamza really brings him down to earth because Brian Reed has obviously never thought of himself as being part of a story or never thought of... I shouldn't drag Brian Reed so hard on this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it becomes, they have some really great conversations about what it means to be in a story and why stories need to be told and whether we are truly objective to the stories that we're telling or whether, you know, we're always involved. And so it's so good and the music's great and it's, yeah, I've finished it very quickly. It was very good. Oh, I'm checking that out. Wow. She's so much more interesting than I am. (laughs) I do the... I'm just such a news junkie. I do 7am, so I listen to Cara's work all the time. And I do the daily and everything that everyone else would already listen to. Recently, I started the um, Australia, if you're listening. Ah, yes. The latest in the Matt Bevan. I haven't seen that yet. It's actually great. so good. Yeah, and it wasn't what I expected. I thought it was, oh, in the run-up to the election, I'm going to break down something about the Australian political system. But it's like, no, I'm going to destroy this (laughs) whole climate change. Yeah, and going back to, you know, Newcastle in the 1800s, it's been much more enlightening. As somebody who follows climate change a lot... I put off. I, I thought I don't really need to listen to that. Mm, mm. And then when I started, I thought, oh, I'm going to just rip through the whole thing now. It's so good. I'll listen to anything so he does. So yeah, yeah. That's, sort of what, that's a trust level on that with anything <laughs> Matt Bevan does. So. Yeah, he's fantastic. And I have a sort of podcast book club kind of thing. Oh. Where we've done a few. We did the 1619 project together, mm. and we did. Uh, I put forward more perfect, so we're doing more perfect. Right, so it's like a book club, but but we listen listen to to podcasts and come out and talk about it. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it's a great idea. Everyone should have them. Yeah, I think that's a pod pod. Mm. Yeah, I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. And the last thing is, just any advice you've got for someone thinking of starting a podcast? What would be the one bit of advice you have? Find your Cara Jensen McKinnon. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) yes, yes. Um, I think if you have a story that you feel in your heart is worth telling and when you tell it to other people at the pub and they're like, that's really cool, that's really interesting, you've got something worth telling and it doesn't matter if the quality's no good or if you don't, you feel like you have the capacity to tell it, I think it's like if you've got something that's worth telling, you should try your best to tell it. Yeah, great advice. And look, just I think this is an incredible podcast on two levels. It's an incredible just piece of work regardless of subject matter but then it's also incredible subject matter and really important and so everyone should just check it out and i can't believe it it's taken us so long to do <laughs> this know. interview i can't believe we've actually done it this conversation <laughs> started the first of december and here is we it are. still is it recording though okay yes. yeah it's recording thank <laughs> god definitely thank got the whole so thing recording so yeah did this start in. the night of the podcast it did, it did. oh my goodness that long. Uh, here we are we've done it but look an incredible piece of work such an honor to talk to you guys thank you so much so much for having us yeah thanks for having us